Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies Academy, in for Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith, our lecturer in philosophy. Today we'll be talking about a controversial topic, namely American elections, but in particular, what our good friend Aristotle might have had to say about them. So before we get started, don't forget the basics. Like and subscribe, hit the bell, leave your comments down below, and don't forget to share this content with your friends. So Dr. Smith, uh, what are your opening thoughts? Well, I think it's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of ways to interpret the contemporary elections we just went through. We just went through the 2022 midterm elections, uh, in which there were some surprises. I think, you know, uh, there were certain predictions that uh, certainly fell short. And, you know, there's right now is a time when you know, we have a, a rich time of uh, sort of analysis of uh, what, what, why, why did things turn out so differently than they were anticipated? And I'd say anticipated uh -huh. To turn out a certain way by by all sides, right? Uh, it wasn't as if this was just sort of um, you know just sort of one faction had its predictions upset, but but in general, right? The the general predictions were upset, um, which uh, I think is interesting. And so I thought, you know, uh, while there's a lot of other analysis out there that's worth listening to, I think it's always good and fruitful uh, to to see what Aristotle has to say. I think Aristotle, as a political thinker. Uh, you know, he's just kind of remarkable, uh, very prescient in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. his, his analysis, even though it's from so long ago, seems sort of to have at least some insight and purchase, uh, even in contemporary settings, which are so different than his own. Uh, and so I think it's just always fruitful to kind of consult uh, what he has to say. I, I think him and then Plato, you know, we're at the very beginnings of political theory in the West. Yeah. And a lot of fruitful ideas are there that are worth, you know, consulting. Yeah, it's funny when you think about the ancient philosophers, the, um, the political philosophy was a big part of it, maybe mm -hmm. even a motivating issue for, mm -hmm. for a great deal of what they were about. Mm -hmm. When you talk about, like, somebody saying, I told you so, it's kind of interesting <laughs> when, when somebody said, I told you, you know, it's, it's an I told you so from 3,000 years ago. <laughs> right, that's right. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it makes mm -hmm. you feel kind of silly. Well, that gives us a little, should give us a little humility. So uh, yeah, Aristotle is very famous as political theory uh, by giving a certain regime analysis, right? But in some ways it's it's very, I think there's a, a normative side to it, but there's also just sort of prescriptive. Like he's just saying, you know, he goes and looks at a bunch of different constitutions he's familiar with and says, well, here's really the kind of the possibilities. Now, mm -hmm. again, you, you could argue whether he, gets all the possibilities whatever that, that, that's fine but the possibilities he, he he does hit on i think again have proven to be uh interesting and i think still are right so he he basically um identifies six possible regimes right the biggest division being between just and unjust just yeah. regimes are ones that are uh, oriented towards the common good and unjust ones are ones that are contrary to the common good in which the ruling part rules in a way that undermines uh the common good right? yeah actually can i can i let me interject right there because sure. I, this is actually a really interesting and i think important part of aristotle's thinking mm -hmm. so normally you know when we think if you think of aristotle you tend to think of um binaries and you think of um 
you think of distinctions made according to genus and species, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's characteristic of his thing, sure. right? Yeah. Now, what's interesting though is um, where exactly where are the dividing lines in his mind? Mm-hmm. Normally, for us today, we tend to think of the um, the general ingredients mm-hmm. in the political system. Mm-hmm. As right. being the distinguishing factors, right? Whether mm. few people rule or many rule or one person rules, mm. that's the distinguishing factor. Right. And then we say, well, it could be a good version or a bad version. But yeah. that's not how Aristotle's thinking. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, he does bring in that other consideration, right? The one, the many, the few, but it's subordinate, right, to this higher consideration, right? Mm-hmm. Which of course goes with his, his overall teleological perspective, right? He's going to want to define good rule by what it's oriented towards right towards its end right uh and and that's and that makes it possible then for him to talk about a just monarchy yeah you know a just rule of one which would be superior to an unjust rule of many right and again so here's the thing right for us today particularly Mm -hmm. in the american situation and Mm -hmm. and you know to a great extent even in in europe right Mm -hmm. The way we tend to think about contemporary secular politics, it's inconceivable to many people <laughs> right. that, there unjust, that there could be a just rule of one. Mm. That's just an inherently unjust. Yeah, yeah. And even of, even where that's name. yeah, even where that is the, in reality the case, uh, uh-huh. maybe just or not just, uh, it's always cloaked in the rhetoric of you know popular uh politics right mm-hmm. you know that it's really i'm ruling in the name of the people or you know something yeah. of that nature right um yeah that's, i think that's an important observation uh nevertheless aerosol then does go on to distinguish between um uh, a just rule of uh one few or many just very mm-hmm. briefly just rule of one as a monarch right a king Again, he's open to a variety of ways of thinking about kingship. You know, it could be hereditary, it could be elected. It's lots of different, you know, there's a, a again, Aristotle's amazingly flexible, like on this, when you get to yeah. these points, you know, he's he's open to like the contingencies. And I think that's one of the things that makes him useful over a long period of time, right? Mm-hmm. Secondly, we could have the rule of a few. Um, so you have some sort of minority faction but it rules for the common good. And this is well, this would be the aristocracy, right? The rule of the aristos, the excellent, the best, right? Uh, and the conceit here is that they really are excellent, right? That this isn't just, you know, rhetoric, but mm-hmm. for um, common good, right? Uh, and then finally, we have the rule of the many for the common good, which would be the republic, right? Um, some interesting features about the Republic in Aristotle's view, we'll, we'll revisit this, but one of the real important features is that, uh, you know, like in a, in a, uh, in a monarchy, uh, an aristocracy honor takes the first place, right. Is, is the most important kind of consideration, right. Especially mm-hmm. in a monarchy, right. Um, in a Republic freedom takes the, 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 the leading place of, of value. But again, this is going to be an Aristotelian freedom, right. Because it's on the side of the common good. So this is right, a kind of right. freedom. that's not, it's not sort it's of not libertarianism or something. That's right. It's not libertarianism. It's not license. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a kind of self-governance right uh ordering ourselves as a large group as a whole towards right virtue and the common good yeah so i mean i guess you would say that this is sort of 
similar to what we have in classical liberalism, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of ordered liberty. Mm -hmm. Especially the American. It's not anything goes. Yeah. 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 I think so. Um, So uh, so on the other side that we have three versions of uh, corrupt governments, right? One is the tyranny properly so-called in which you have the rule of one for himself, right? That Mm -hmm. is contrary to the common good. Um, so here you just think of your classic, you know, selfish, you know, dictatorship. I would think of like Manuel Noriega and Panama, you know, these mm-hmm. sorts of people, right? Um, then you would have uh, the rule of a few, contrary to the common good. So that'd be the oligarchy. And then the rule of the many against the common good, which he calls, interestingly enough, democracy. And right. he distinguishes right. even within a democracy between, you know, extreme democracies and uh, uh, and sort of moderate democracies, but he sees, and this is again something just counterintuitive to us, that it's entirely possible to have the rule of the many and it be vicious and unjust. Yeah, right. That was actually one of the insights that I derived from Aristotle that I found like particularly liberating mm-hmm. for me in terms of. By liberating here, I mean that it opened my mind and allowed mm-hmm. me to see things from. A perspective to which I'd been blind in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up in the United States, you just the word democracy has a certain sanctity to it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you just you can't imagine that it just seems like the word that it, it's almost a, a it's almost a synonym for justice in the way that sure. You're, sure. you're brought to you know you're brought up to think about it. But no, not for Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And it, it's eminently um it's eminently clear, actually, right? Mm-hmm. What he means. Yeah, you could have a whole bunch of individuals running around clamoring for their own private goods. Uh-huh. The aggregate of that turns out to be um, what they end up sort of choosing by mob rule. Yes. That's not a just situation. That's right. And, and as much as you're absolutely right, Rich, uh, in terms of, I would say, the current received American view about democracy, I think very interestingly, our founding fathers were not so naive about this, right? Yeah. In fact, they're very clearly worried about uh, the tyranny of the majority, right? This is something that's in their writings that we hardly even speak about anymore, but they were very clear. Yeah. That's why we have a written constitution that has constitutional rights, even if the majority are against them, right? Right, right. You know, uh, so they, they recognize that mere majoritarianism, even though they certainly wanted a republic, they weren't. Uh, the founding fathers of America weren't merely majoritarians, right? Yeah, and consider the fact that they they came up with um, they came up with a system of divided government. They came mm-hmm. up with a, a bicameral uh, legislature, mm-hmm. and the means in the original design, mm-hmm. right? The means of um, electing people to each chamber was different, mm-hmm. and yeah. in my view, that's wise. Mm-hmm. I, I think I. If I had my way, if I could change, sort of tweak one thing about the Constitution, I would probably pull back. I would I'd pull back on the Seventeenth Amendment and return the. I mean, that's my own view. I would, yeah. but I, I think it was wise, sure, to to have a different means of electing senators than representatives. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to do different things, right? Their purpose right. Yeah. is different in the legislature. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm in agreement with you on this. <laughs> so uh, I think, yeah, they're the cooling chamber. They're the, 
they're the dignified ones. They have longer, you know, a longer tenure on purpose. Um, and they're not supposed to be subject to popular whim, right? And they're supposed to be an insulating layer mm-hmm. um, that preserves the um that preserves the the sort of sovereignty and distinctness of the states and their own particular interests. Mm-hmm. States as states, right? Right. Um, so and that's that was the reason why they were appointed by state legislatures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, for all the things that this helps to explain that what to some is the aggravating feature, right, of American polity, right, which is that we do have divided government, not only in branches, but between federal and state, in order to hold off uh, the tyranny of the majority, right, yeah. in order to sort of limit, you know, uh, a kind of mob rule uh, from happening, albeit many of those features, uh, as you pointed out, have been eroded. Um, so that's just a broad sketch. One thing I do, I definitely want to point out here is that, uh, Aristotle goes on to give some nuances that I think are important in distinguishing some of these regimes in particular between oligarchy and democracy. Mm-hmm. It's not on his, he said, you know, he starts out by talking about distinguishing broadly between the rule of a few and the rule of, of many, but what he, he changes, what he, what he adds, I should say mm-hmm. to that very general description is the idea that, in fact, uh, what really distinguishes at a deeper level oligarchy is their primary understanding of justice, right? Or their primary understanding of what's most important. And for the oligarchy, it's ruled by the wealthy, right? That wealth is your claim to rule, right? And um, interestingly, Aristotle is a little nod to the oligarchs. He says that they're wrong, of course, but he does say, you know, the idea here is, well, if if they contribute more, mm-hmm. right, then why shouldn't they have a broader say, right? That's the oligarch's perspective. And Aristotle yeah. says there's a piece of justice in that, right? There's a little bit you can kind of say, like, well, there's a little something to be said about that. Again, I kind of think the American polity kind of reflected that, you know, uh, idea that there's a little bit of uh, of say there you would you would want to grant uh to those who contribute more at least in terms of a material well-being um on the other hand but it's exaggerated right it's like taking the one little part and making it the whole right yeah um and then uh on the other side very interestingly right what democracy prizes above all things is equality right and this is distinct in his mind from the republic right so both the republic and the democracy they're the rule of the many but what's prized by the Republic is uh, virtuous self-governance. What's prized by the democracy is a kind of unjust egalitarianism or a kind of unjust obsession, right? With equality, right? Now, does that, that does that sound familiar, Rich? It sounds really familiar. I can't quite <laughs> put my finger on where I've heard it before. <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of remarkable, right? I mean, it, yeah. these are still the same terms. I mean, even if you happen to be very sympathetic to you it's interesting that these are the same kinds of terms right that our own philosophical our own political conflicts the wealthy you know like you know we we you know whether you're you know calling like being against the wealthy is a very classical thing to do in modern america you could be uh-huh. against those corporate pig capitalist pigs that's one way to be against the wealthy right or you could be against you know uh uh, you'd be against wealth in terms of wanting to redistribute right goods and 
sort of help everybody and, and all that sort of thing, right? Or you could be against the I'm thinking that they're sort of like some kind of global elitist group, right? That's trying to to oppress everybody and rule over everybody, right? So the point the point being is even whether you kind of fall on the right or left there, it is interesting. These are the the very terms in which we dis- debate, right? Politics, right? Yeah. Uh, which I think is uh, you know speaks well for Aristotle's understanding. Now, what of the now what of this is applicable to us? One of the really interesting things uh, in Greek political thought, especially at the time. Is, and you can find this not only in Aristotle, but authors like, authors like Thucydides who are more interested in history, is the idea of um, that within the same polis, within within the same community, there will actually be vying regimes, right? Which I think is, is, is actually really interesting. It's one thing to say, you know, I would argue from a historical grounds and, and political legal grounds, right, that the United States of America is a federal constitutional republic, Right. Um, you know that I think that that's true. Okay, but you could say, but as a matter of fact, you're but de facto, right? We have competing elements within it, right? Mm-hmm. Some of which are more oligarch, some of which are more democratic, and I would say some are more republican. Now, one note of caution here: I can't help but use the adjectives republican and democratic here, right? Just it does that's that's the english language those okay? are aristotle's words yeah those are you know that's the that's the the terminology we have uh so that's you know, the terminology i'm gonna use i don't take those to be synonymous with the two parties in our own system although one could see some maybe consonants there um uh if you wish so uh i think that that's though fair right to say about america and american politics right well, let's just start with the, the the republic part of that, right? So Aristotle thinks that uh, uh, those who favor a republic or the uh, a republican form of government is going to emphasize self-governance and freedom, right? Mm-hmm. And it's going to emphasize a, a predominance of the middle class, right? And it's really interesting that Aristotle brings class into his analysis politically, right? Uh, you know, uh, we start reading, when you really read into the Aristotle's politics, like the whole book, he brings up class quite a bit and economics quite a bit as an important feature, really, of uh, political life. And, I, and again, I think he's astute on that point. The um, the middle class, um, he thinks um, they have enough property that they are independent, right? So we're not talking about renters here, right? We're talking about people who own property, mm-hmm. they have enough that they are not destitute, they're not desperate, can live well, right? And again, just kind of maybe pushes against some of our sensibilities. But, you know, Aristotle doesn't think the desperately poor can live well. He does think they're necessarily vicious, but he thinks it's hard to live a flourishing life if you're desperately right, poor. Right, right, yeah. Uh, that's the way I'd put it. Um, so the, the middle class are people who have enough property to live well, as in flourish as human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Adequately dependent on, a, they're not dependent on patronage necessarily. Um, they, uh, but interesting, he says, they have enough to be virtuous, but not enough to be luxurious and decadent, right? So the, the, the thing about the middle class he finds very appealing, right, is they're sort of, and this is so Aristotle, right? They're sort of median, their middleness, right? Actually, between extreme poverty and yeah. wealth is ex- 
exactly what's appropriate about them. They're not so comfortable that they're going to be decadent, but they're not so desperately poor that they're either going to be uh, uh, in despair or revolutionary. Yeah. Right? So for Aristotle, I mean, it's important to point this out for the for the audience because some of them may not, maybe some of them aren't that familiar with Aristotle okay. uh, as a as a thinker. I'm sure many of them are, but you never know. So um, for Aristotle, right, his his idea of virtue revolves around this mean, right? This golden mm-hmm. mean, neither mm-hmm. deficiency nor excess. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying, right, is that the middle class is defined as sort of this virtuous mean. Right. It's actually the ideal sort of place for human beings to exist in terms of their relationship mm-hmm. with wealth and comfort. Right. Yeah, it has a has a confidence. So one thing he says is the middle class is is the more uh, the middle class man is the one most apt to to rule or be ruled, right? Mm-hmm. Like he he's both capable, has the education and so forth to rule if he needs to, but he's also not so proud that he can't be ruled, uh-huh. right? Which is kind of something he kind of pushes up on on. on on the very wealthy, right? Now, it's not necessarily the case with all the wealthy, but he does see that as a real problem, right? Is that they have kind of arrogance that's un- that cr- makes them unstable for the state, uh, and a kind of contempt for the classes that that are not there, right? Uh, and that, that that undermines the fellow feeling that he sees as an important part of the political community, right? And I actually think in our recent politics, Rich, that feeling of the well-offs having contempt yeah for everyone else that that matters <laughs> like yeah, that's been something that's active you and know? it's hard to deny but that again, it's I don't a real think, thing it's yeah, hard to deny yeah. it's a real thing and i think it's interesting i think aristotle the psychological fact of fellow feeling mm-hmm. is a very important part of the polis in in his view right if you got to at least have the view that those above me are not against me <laughs> yeah. and that we're at least in some sort of shared project, at least to some right. degree. Right. Uh, I think that's important. Yeah. It's funny. Um, you know, I, I think of Max Scheler and um, you know, his thinking on these kinds of questions in the mm-hmm. early 20th century, mm-hmm. he was very concerned about the rise of um, fascism mm-hmm. uh, as well as communism. Mm-hmm. And um both of those kind of play on these sorts of um, mm-hmm. these tensions, right? And right. Um, you know, so he wrote that he wrote that must-read book, um, *Resentiment*. Right? In my opinion, mm-hmm. it's a must-read uh, if you want to understand politics from the 20th century to now. It seems to me yeah. you've got to you've got to get that. It's it's this, very um, lovely, also when you pair it with genealogy morals. Yeah, genealogy morals, right? Yeah, because they both talk about recidivism, but they have different views of it, right? Yeah, and actually, um, and um, and Shaler is Shaler is critiquing actually Nietzsche's mm-hmm. um, yeah. Nietzsche's diagnosis of the problem as well. But so, mm-hmm. I mean, again, for our uh, audience, what is resentment? Um, it's not it's not resentment, right? It's not the same thing as that. It's um, mm-hmm. it's literally changing your sentiments right changing the way you feel about things and it's kind of um i guess i might describe it as a what uh well sort of a sour grapes kind of 
thing um mm-hmm. maybe uh reverse snobbery right yeah so, I, I, yeah i like to call it displaced self i'm sorry what did you that's say kind of a, what, uh, uh, that's kind of a nietzsche inversion displaced self-loathing yeah displaced self-loathing yeah so it's there right it's like the guy who decides that um he doesn't like craft beer because because he associates mm. craft beer with you know the uppity types right, right. um and yeah. so he just contents himself with you know with his ordinary everyday uh-huh. beer um uh-huh. and convinces himself that that's that's what's really good right right yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think that's fair um so in the i think in the american scene uh rich when you look at these these things right i think we do have i mean it's clear right you just have to listen to the rhetoric of political debates right um there is a a republican faction right that is, is a faction that believes in and wants to promote self-governance freedom mm-hmm. and the household right that is this kind of middle position right um a middle class position of sort of moderate prosperity where the most important thing we tend to not we about family is something only romantic or only sentiment mm-hmm. and aristotle of course would recognize there is affection within a family that's a very important uh there's kind of piety that's attached to family but like most of history you know really it's not until the 20th century that we cease to think of the family as an economic unit right yeah uh he thinks of it as an economic unit and it's the economic unit even contemporary uh economists will grant this one of the one of the most impo- powerful engines of being in the middle class is being part of an intact household. An intact household is a powerful economic unit uh, for achieving a moderate prosperity. Right, right. Uh, and and the dissolution of such a household is uh, it tends yes. to lead to the loss of that. That's right. Unless you're on the very wealthy side, uh-huh. right? It doesn't matter then as you much. You could afford right? it. Then you could afford it. That's right. You can afford it. And one of the things that's interesting, a number of thinkers have brought up uh, recently is that the wealthy can afford decadence in a way that the middle and lower classes can't, right? They can indulge and it just doesn't matter as much, right? Oh, I have to, you know, I have to pay off, you know, okay, so I have to, you know, it's expensive for me to get out of this marriage, but I still have so much money. Doesn't really matter, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I think the household as supporting the middle class is key, and I think it's, it is one of the key distinguishing marks between being in the middle class and not being in the middle class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Aristotle's right about that, and I think he's right about that in America, right? Mm-hmm. The American, you know, sort of dream is actually not, or never, it wasn't historically um opulence right the american dream was that the average man average uh, uh family working together being frugal uh could achieve a kind of moderate prosperity uh that had it carried with it a kind of independence right and i think that we see that faction strongly in america right i, mean, I think mm-hmm. the idea that family moderate prosperity frugality hard work uh, and self-governance, right, are all part of 
a certain way of life in America. And that there's a certain faction that wants to do what it needs to do politically to keep that going. Yeah, and what's interesting is that while there's a self-interest to that, sure. uh, it's not selfish, right? Because because that particular faction sees that as a as a common good, right? It's right. It's uh, it's not just good for me. It's good for mm-hmm. it's good for all of us. It's good for all of us. It's good for even for the polis. I mean, I think Aristotle thinks because they're the most stable. They're the mm-hmm. ones most likely to to see the importance of civic uh, virtue and civic uh, stability. You right? can envision a future for your society from that vantage point. Mm-hmm. That's right. But one in which you need that society too, right? You see sort of, you're not, you don't have the arrogance necessarily of the super wealthy, right? Nor the despair of those who are super dispossessed, right? I think when you, when you, you know, when you sort of imagine like, today um we speak of globalists and mm-hmm. you know there's a way of thinking about what that is um mm-hmm. the um you know there's a sense in which the the local the regional the national um is not a value right it's not it's not an object of value no and, yeah they don't even right, from care the, about yeah from those from that point of view and um and I, I remember, I forgot where I read this, who said it, but I remember reading um, someone had described a certain kind of person as someone who could live anywhere, right? Mm. The cosmopolitan, right? He could live right, anywhere, right, right. just as at home in Paris as he is mm-hmm. in New York, right? Um, as he is in Istanbul, right? But mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. None of that matters to him. He's got the money mm. and Mm-hmm. He's just used to being wherever he wants to be. But there's another class of people who live in a place, right? They right. live here in this mm-hmm. town, right? They right. associate very strongly with where they were raised or where they've lived for many, many years, where they've mm-hmm. raised their families, mm-hmm. um, where they work, where they have mm-hmm. the ability to support themselves because they have a job. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't live anywhere. They live mm-hmm. somewhere. That's right. 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 And Mm. that divide, I think, is probably the that's probably the. Maybe the truest way to cast the um, sort of populist versus globalist, Mm. um, you know, sort of tension. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And And so and so what you have then is that, you know, you have a possibility where the middle class, right, because of who it is and because of the kinds of things that they depend on and because because of sort of their status as a class, right, are more attached to what you're saying, to their location, right, um, but are off, can, can be sort of squeezed out between two other forces, right? Yeah. Both, both um, kind of uh, the dispossessed revolutionaries Right, I would call them uh, mm-hmm. the extremely poor, uh, who not just are poor, but want to take from others in order to improve their situation. Right, that's that's yeah. a real key there. Right, that's the revolutionary, right, uh, dispossessed. And on the other hand, you know the the upper class. Now, it's not as if, but because somebody's upper class, that they won't necessarily be patriotic. And same thing, somebody who's lower class. 
but you can still find these tendencies, right? That yeah, that there is at the very top end, you know, say in America, there's a lot of people who seem to almost hate the country, right? Yeah. And and sort of despise people who shop at Target and Walmart, you know, like, oh, there's something just all oh, you're just so, you know, uh. You know, that's kind of you know like that's that's the reaction to them you know oh you like to eat it uh cracker barrel well clearly yeah you know, you're, you're, you're the deplorable <laughs> yeah you're deplorable right how could you do you know uh it's kind of contempt right from from that side um towards sort of the middle class the middle class isn't um as free to be decadent and luxurious right it doesn't have those things right it might have a small you know um a modicum of comfort right and a modicum of security right but it doesn't have luxury it doesn't have opulence yeah so right? every now and then they could go out and have somebody else cook their meal it right. can't be an opulent meal but it could be cracker mm. barrel that's right, right? <laughs> cracker barrel that's right and hey, everybody's happy like wow man we're going to cracker barrel this way. Like, <laughs> hey, you know um but yeah so um i think uh in american politics i would want to um interpret right the the poor okay that the lower here the many right mm-hmm. uh in this case um as the dispossessed right uh or those who view themselves as the dispossessed and so here we have i think kind of the what i would consider like the radical victims classes that we're familiar with, be familiar with right that is those who are not just poor but those who are poor and let me just say obviously there can be people who are poor that we probably with a maybe um a little better eye than aristotle on this point um recognize you know poor to no fault of their own that sort of thing right um uh still hard working law-abiding patriotic all those sorts of things right and that's very much true but there is an element of the poor just like just like you know when i teach it when i teach a section on greed of course, I lead with greedy, wealthy, right? Uh, when I talk about the vice of greed, but it's also the case, right, that the poor can be greedy, right? They're just not necessarily as successful. Right? Yeah, they're not as successful, at it. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. But that doesn't the, mean they don't have the. Nothing to point out. There, so there are two elements here, right? To 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 think about. Now, I I know this is going to sound really sounds very judgmental to contemporary listeners, but. Understanding Aristotle's point, right? Um, there are two issues. Number one, certain behaviors will tend towards certain results in our lives. So middle-class people who behave with a certain degree of vice will tend to fall from the middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, the other thing is that your circumstances do... Here, actually, Aristotle and Marx have a certain thing in common. It's not identical, yeah. but... Yeah, your circumstances think... will influence the extent to which you can achieve certain goals, even regarding sure. your own your own mm. personal formation. Right. Mm. So um you deprived of certain opportunities and resources, you can't educate right. yourself as well as you might otherwise be educated. Sure. You can't I think that's right? yeah, yep. So um so that's kind of the di- that's kind of what's at work, I guess, in the in the dynamic there. So, yeah. yeah, it's true. Think, there are poor people who nonetheless, right, overcome. They don't seem to overcome mm-hmm. their poverty, but they do overcome all these other obstacles and yet become excellent people. Sure. sure. Right. 
That's yeah. true. That can happen. Yeah. But the deck mm-hmm. is sort of stacked against, against you. Yeah. Sure, sure. I think that's the case. And I think what's most important about this, the 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 negative group, you know, from Aristotle's perspective here, is that they have the dispossession with the desire to take from others, right? And to overstep others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, you can think about this here as not just poor, but the poor who are, again, radical in the sense of, we're willing to, we want to take from those who have more in order to address our situation, right? To better our situation. And yeah. I think in our own time, we need to expand this in a way maybe Aristotle could have possibly imagined, right? Um, to include you know, the kinds of uh, liberation movements, right? That um, neo Marxism has introduced into our uh, polity. Right. So that we have, you know, uh, sort of, you know, for a lot of feminists, right. The the most important issue is abortion, because being pregnant against your your desire may be unequal. Right. And we have to force upon society. I mean, even now. Right. That that others should pay for mm-hmm. abortion so that I may be equal to men. Right. Um and then, of course, you can see this in terms of, uh, you know, the more radical elements of the civil rights movement. You can see this, uh, of course, in uh, gender movements, you know, the uh, homosexual movements, all those sorts of movements, right, that want to dispossess the household, right, dispossess, you know, the kind of uh, family life that's part of uh, the middle class, really, frankly, want to almost seem to destroy it. Right. Yeah. In order to increase their own position in society. Right. Uh, at the expense of sort of the middle class. Right. And the kind of life hole that goes with being middle class. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's let's bring this back to the question of the of mm-hmm. American elections. Right. Okay. So. All right. I think we've identified. We have identified sort of the elements. Right. Um mm-hmm. But, but how does this play out in terms of what we see when American elections happen, and what would Aristotle mm-hmm. say about about that about that scene? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as I indicated, again, there's a lot of complex factors, a lot of ways to describe explain what we witnessed. You know, just most recently, I think this is just one uh, window onto this. But um, you know, you can see very clearly uh, a distinction between married and unmarried, right, yeah. in the voting patterns, right? That was pretty profound, actually. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, you can't deny it. I mean, it was like 60% plus of unmarried women, right, yeah. vote for a kind of regime that will redistribute wealth, essentially, and redistribute uh, social, you know, I want to say social security, but security within the sort of society i don't mean social security as the program Mm -hmm. but security within society at the expense of the uh the middle class right they're voting a certain way they tend to vote left right uh and broke pretty strongly to the left this time and it's not just a male versus female um yeah it's married versus there it's married, right? Because majority, now it is true. Right? It, it is true that me, unmarried men did tend Certainly. to break to the right. 
but not mm-hmm. as strongly as um, mm-hmm. as the married. And interestingly, uh, I won't get into all the details here, but Aristotle actually talks about the fact that um, men and middle-classness kind of go together. <laughs> uh, I won't get into all the reasons why, but he wouldn't have been surprised. He would have been like, uh, of course, uh, right? Uh, he says among the wealthy, the person who's in charge of the family is whoever has the most wealth, <laughs> right? That's all that matters really, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it tends to be different in um, the middle class in which the household right is the the, the main unit and uh and the sort of functions of the household but i would see that you know pretty clearly right is the married versus unmarried and even married men and unmarried men right there's a division it's not as sharp obviously uh as between married women and unmarried women right uh so that's kind of uh workable i think in itself the other is that you know um minorities in the united states still you know see themselves as you know a victim group um to a you know pretty strong degree you know uh i think this last election african americans were like over 80 percent uh voting for the left uh that that that's pretty <laughs> that's really yeah, strong it's pretty decisive it's pretty it's decisive you know? for sure but it's it's actually less than it used to be which is that's interesting mm-hmm. um I think because of, of gains made among men you know, and that's true. Latino men and black men tend to be not as left uh-huh. as uh, Latino uh, women or uh, African-American women. Uh, but those are two areas in particular. The other has to do with immigration. And early stuff. Again, it's fascinating that Aristotle thought about immigration as an important political issue. Like, you're like, how this guy, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. but, you know, really like immigration was a big deal in Athenian politics. Um and uh and even amnesty <laughs> yeah well, actually explain politics, that you know? a little bit because that's from a historical perspective that's hard to understand i think because you know from our perspective we've got you know systems of immigration there's a way of becoming a citizen mm-hmm. sure um, sure sure how did this it's a lot more it, what was going on yeah it's, it's a lot more fluid obviously in the ancient world but they do have a strict sense of of franchise and citizenship franchise uh-huh. and the citizen being a citizen and in a republic like athens right so mm-hmm. athens is a republic uh it's not even an aristocracy like say um sparta or a monarchy like say crete um it's a you know a public citizenship is jealously guarded Right. Uh, as a as a as a right, right, that that gives your family right standing right uh within the, the polis. And they even talk, Aristotle even talks about the economic factors of it, right? That is that the more the higher the rate of immigration, the more the middle class will be impoverished. Uh and that plays out at least, at least in the level of rhetoric, whether you believe that's true or not, in the level of rhetoric. It certainly plays out, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think in America, middle class, um, uh, you know, a lot of the middle class, as you say, and this is, includes skilled labor, um, are threatened by um, people coming in who can be paid a lower wage, right? Uh, and it sort of has the effect of lowering, right, the price of labor, to put it in economic terms. Yeah. But yeah. you know, and the and the other the other part of this too is that, um. And this is a sense of issue, uh, but is a sense of unity, right? That is that, you know, the Athenian Greek city-states 
valued their customs and their traditions and their, you know, even the republics, right? Um, and, you know, felt that there was there was an undermining of fellow feeling, right? Right. If there was an excess. Now, Aristotle was a moderate, again, he wasn't against immigration uh, himself, but he did recognize it as something that has to be thought about very carefully, right? Uh, in terms of uh, your polis. Right now, we don't seem to be thinking about it very carefully at all. It's just like, you know, just whatever. <laughs> you know, like, you know yeah. uh, he wasn't xenophobic. And in fact, the, the term xenophobic comes from ancient Greece, right? Yeah. That there are extremes like of no immigration, right? And Aristotle wasn't for that. He actually thought some mix of the foreign was good uh, within a, a polis, um, but that it still needed to have a weight of unity to it. Right. So, I mean, sort of imagine, imagine if you have a, a glass and it's, it's half full and um, you want to fill it like there's room. So you want to fill it more. Well, right. you could drizzle <laughs> liquid into it and it remains sure. very stable as you pour. Or yeah, you could just yeah. blast the faucet. Right. And it, mm. and you end up splashing everything everywhere. Right. And it's, that's right. Yeah. It's a huge mess. As an analogy, that sounds, yeah, as an, right, analogy, as an yeah. analogy, that's what happens when when there's mm. too much, too fast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then our contemporary uh, sort of setting, as far as oligarchy goes, I think those who vote that way, like how, how do the very wealthy vote? And I'm not talking about even maybe the you know accountant who makes six figures. I'm talking about like the very very wealthy, uh -huh. right? Um, what is their influence? Um, and it certainly seems to not be in favor of the household. Uh, it certainly seems to not be in favor of um, the middle class, insofar as the household and the middle class are, if not synonymous, highly associated. Yeah. Um, the it's certain, and I, and I and I would I would say that empirical grounds. It's not in favor of custom and tradition either. That's right. Yeah. And like, if you look at our elite institutions run by the the wealthiest people in America, they seem to be antithetical. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seem. I mean, that just seems to me evident from various policies adopted, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You know, and various causes uh, that have been espoused. Um, now, whether or not they're actually on the on the side of the radically dispossessed, that's another matter, right? But, you know, one issue I do think that was interesting, right, is that I think pro-abortion women came out in this election more strongly, right, than anticipated, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Aristotle, you know, if he had known about all this, you know, kind of thought it all through, I think, and, and thought about it in the categories I've talked about, if you think about feminism as being the view that women are radically dispossessed and need to grab back power for men right and part of that is abortion then it kind of makes sense right that the name of women's equality there would be this strong push right against right uh um the overturning of roe versus wade um it's not shocking you know whether uh, and i think in the very tight local elections because all these elections are actually local elections if you really think about it you're talking about a state level uh, or or um, district level or House representatives, um, 
you know, where these are very tight and they tend to be very tight races these days, um, you know, that kind of energy can sway, you know, uh, the vote, right? Because it just gets a little bit more of your people out than maybe would have been otherwise, you know, uh, does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So um, it looks to me that these days, no. um, middle-class is most strongly aligned to um, to sort of the Republican mm-hmm. party. While the two poles of the very poor and the very wealthy mm-hmm. tend to be aligned with the mm-hmm. Democratic party, right? And I guess what I'm wondering is what coincidence of interest do the very, very wealthy and the very, very poor um, share? That's an interesting question. Um, I can. I'm what I'm going to say here is very speculative, right? Uh-huh. Because I don't have insight into the particular motivations of these very wealthy people, although I can make maybe guesses. Okay. But um, from a classicist point of view, right. One thing that presents itself to you, right. Is the, um, the picture of the Tyrannos, right. In ancient Mm -hmm. Greece, right. Right. Now, interestingly, the original meaning, Uh right. Of tyrant is a leader who's for the people. Right. Right. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, uh-huh. I mean it, it, it's just fascinating, right? That that is the and 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 that is for this mob of people. So this would happen in ancient Greek city states. We miss this sometimes, right? I mean, you just need to read Thucydides. I mean, these places could be very violent, uh-huh. right? I mean, we think about political violence now. We ain't got nothing on ancient world uh-huh. political violence, <laughs> even within cities, right? Um, there would be times this happened in ancient Athens, this happened in Crete, this happened in, like all sorts of different places, Corinth, where a faction within would overthrow the other faction mm-hmm. and murder everyone. Right? Right. Okay. <laughs> right. I mean, what about real large scale violence here? Right. Uh-huh. And typically there was this idea of the middle and the aristocracy kind of having most of the power in this kind of distributed way, right? So there was no, like, monarch, right? Uh-huh. But there was kind of, um, we'll say, an establishment that was an aristocracy or just, say, some wealthy leading families and then some broad middle class. Mm-hmm. They have too much to the many. And one person from that aristocracy would come out and become the champion, right, of the many. And overthrow yeah, the basically Constitution. Basically, he would amass a populist army or something. That's right. Yeah. Right. And overthrow. I mean, this is why Julius Caesar was killed. I mean, yeah. uh, like the, the, the Roman senators who killed him, I'm not necessarily saying it's right, not necessarily saying it's wrong, just saying these are the terms of the debate, right? Is he saw himself and a lot of his supporters saw themselves as liberators. Like, I'm, I'm getting rid of this old Constitution too curmudgeonly. And, and, and admittedly, there was a lot of, you know, senatorial corruption and things that were problematic. And 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 the senators saw them as overthrowing the ancient constitution of Rome, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they took the knives. <laughs> but uh, the Tyrannos, right, was originally like the powerful man for the people, right, who would overthrow them. All that said is, 
it does seem to me plausible uh, that the convergence here is that an aggrieved victimized group if you are their liberator that gives you power mm-hmm. and it's weird to think but there are people in the world and in life and i think again ancient philosophers and political theorists are very good on this because sometimes we just get way too fancy about all this there just are people who like power they just want yeah or because they want power and it's not because they have weird beliefs it's just because that's the way they are yeah they want so to dominate other people and that is very very strange because you think you already have billions of dollars um how much more power do you need those guys got there by thinking there was never enough uh-huh, uh-huh. that's what aristotle would say i think yeah that's what cicero would say that's what Plato would say about them, right? right? The reason you got to that point, unless you're just blessed, uh-huh. right? Or unless you're just, you know, uh, you know, the stars aligned or something, the majority of the time you got to that place is because you didn't think there was enough. Right. Right. And that's yeah, the- that that Pleonexia and mm-hmm. right, and and your unbridled ambition, right? That's Which right, in the ancient world was understood to be a vice. To be a vice and a reality. Uh-huh. Vice and it's a reality politics. And that's yeah. again why, you know, like in Rome, it's so funny uh reading the history of Republican Rome, right? They were so worried about monarchical aspiration. Anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Roman Republic lasted hundreds of years, right? It lasts a long time. But man, they they like they could the monarch over there. Right? <laughs> But anybody who had any monarchical pretensions in their place, they they went after them. <laughs> so would Aristotle because, um, be happy with American election? <laughs> would he roll his eyes? I don't think so. I think he would see us in a, in a real problematic situation. I think he would see uh, my own Aristotelian critique of the United States, uh, and and a, fr- a mutual friend of ours were talking about this. A couple of weeks ago, um, who was a student a long time ago uh, of mine, but is America is too big. Um, the it's too big, it's too diverse to be governed as if it were one political unit, right? Yeah, it's a whole um, discussion by itself. But um, yeah. but just number, two things on that though. Uh, number one, that was an insight from the ancient world, right? Mm-hmm. That. Any polis that was larger than what? What did Plato say? It's pretty small. Yeah, right, right. It, it, it's unmanageable. It's unmanageable. Um, and the other thing was the the framers of the U.S. Constitution mm-hmm. were deeply concerned, right, that the United States, even when it was thirteen colonies and only a few million people, was much right. too big. Too big. Yeah, I think yeah, and and even from an ancient perspective, again, they were familiar with gigantic political units like uh-huh. the Persian Empire, right. Right. And, you know, and, and I think even the best of the Greeks would give a grudging respect to the emperor. Right. And say, you know, that's an empire. We don't want to be part of it. <laughs> right? Yeah. But that's an no, empire. we're aiming at. Yeah. Like uh, and if you are that big, you kind of got to be an empire or some approximation of an empire. Um, 
I like the way Montesquieu, not an ancient thinker, but an enlightenment thinker, who I think is still quite astute, uh, put it is that the best you can do in this situation is to have an alliance of republics. Yeah, uh, right. right. That sounds to me like American federalism, you know. Um, or maybe where it needs to just resign itself to being. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and really, I've been on this point for a long time, even when I was more academically uh, involved, it was to to argue that the, the our biggest problem is we're just not a polis. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. said, we just don't have enough commonality at this point uh, to have uh, the kind of fruitful life that Aristotle wanted. That doesn't mean we can't come up with some sort of uh, wise and thoughtful arrangement uh-huh. by which we could still sort of cooperate uh and 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 you know sort of be connected in some ways uh but that we have to recognize that really political life needs to go on at a much more local level it does seem though that we're in the midst of kind of working that out and i it seems Uh, to me that um we i don't know we don't see clearly where we're headed but but when you look at concretely, like at a practical level, mm-hmm. the results of these elections in the past few cycles, mm-hmm. there's special. an unconscious working out in, of things in that sort of direction. Yeah, I think so. And as painful as that may be, and as worrisome uh, in a lot of ways, um, and I take that seriously, um, it still might actually be prudent under these circumstances uh-huh if that makes sense considering like what are the alternatives on the table right right yeah um yeah all right so um do you have any final thoughts because we this is we've i think we've okay. gone a bit long but sure yeah just final that. thoughts uh I, I think um you know my cards on the table here aerosol is correct that if you're going to have a republic the middle class needs to be predominant and that uh-huh. means favoring a certain kind of lifestyle. And um, it's not as it's about economic class, but it's primarily about a certain lifestyle, right? Uh-huh. Uh, namely one that's middling, right? In which you're not grasping at every golden ring, but you're hardworking, frugal, you know, uh, creating a, an economic unit called the family that mm-hmm. is uh, both prosperous and virtuous, uh, you know, both useful and virtuous <laughs> to put it in Aristotelian terms. Um, and it actually uh, contributes to the common good of the polis. These other things that destroy it are inimical to the common good. Uh, and I do think in the long long view, I think the United States, I think kind of what we've been talking about here at the end, kind of decentralization is probably the, the, the current elections point in that direction, right, right as our best situation. We are so closely divided, so hot. Like, I think we're so hostile because we're so closely divided, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, like, the, the, the degree of hostility, the degree of division, the closeness of these things is not really sustainable, it seems to me. Uh, and that really, we've got the solution, which is, is federalism. Yeah. All right. So, um, thanks for having this conversation. And um, there's a lot for our audience to think about as usual. Um, Yeah, so in the audience, don't forget, 
hit the like and subscribe button and uh, share our content. Uh, Thanks for joining us and God bless.